Good morning, Familia. My name is Brent, and I have the joy of serving as executive pastor of ministry. I have just one brief announcement as we head into a time of worship together. Scripture teaches us that baptism is an outward symbol of a person's repentance and clear profession of faith in Jesus Christ. This is a significant event in the life of each believer, as well as an exciting celebration for us as a church family. Here at Wheaton Bible Church, our desire is for everyone who's professed their faith in Jesus, but has not been baptized, to take this next step. So on Sunday, October 2nd, we will launch our updated classes for those seeking to know more about baptism. Classes will be offered in English and in Spanish for kids, students, and adults. These two-part classes will each cover our foundational understanding of the gospel, baptism, and communion, each with an age-appropriate focus. The kids and student classes are specifically designed to provide teaching that spurs spiritual discussion between children and parents in class together and at home throughout the week. We encourage parents to attend with their children, but if your child has not completed the eighth grade, at least one parent must attend with the child. For more information or to register, check out wheatonbible.org baptism. We look forward to taking this next step with you. a joyous morning to be able to worship God together, and what better way to begin our worship than with a family dedication, right? Oh, come on. I know you're excited to see the little ones coming up. Are you excited? Yes. yes. Well, Psalm 127.3 says this, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. As believers, we recognize that God has given us our children as gifts, and we're to steward them well. And we have the responsibility of raising them to know God. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses commands the nation of Israel to love God and teach their children to love God. In the same way, parents, we must choose to love God first. So this morning, we have an opportunity uh, to celebrate together as a church family as a family comes to dedicate. So I'm going to invite the family up. We have one family, but quite a family. Also, would you guys join here? As you can see, family's important to them. They are dedicating little Matthew Hollis, who is 10 months old. Morning. He's very inquisitive, checking things out. But Matthew is joined by all of his siblings here. We have Luke, Aubrey, Rachel, Nora, and Charlotte. This is the Gottlieb family. So Mark and Jamie are dedicating little Matthew. And the verse they have chosen for Matthew is Isaiah 43, 1 and 2. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. May the Lord bless you guys as you raise all of your kids to trust in the Lord. Brent, would you pray for them? Church family, uh, would you outstretch your arms as we pray a prayer of dedication upon them because we are participating with them and encouraging and supporting them as a church family. Let's pray. Dear Father, we just come before you 
And we praise you and thank you for the little ones you've entrusted to our care. And this little one today that's being dedicated, Lord, would you walk before him? Would you, uh, would your word uh, impact his mind? May he respond uh, to the knowledge of your gospel? Lord, as this entire family uh, strives to make your word paramount in their family, Lord, would you bless that? So would you bless and keep him, make your face shine upon him today. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Church. Church family, join us by standing and worshiping with us.
questions and answers that come from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So let's read together responsibly. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God. What does the law of God require? Personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love our neighbors as ourselves. Can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? Since the fall, no mere human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. Will God allow our disobedience to go unpunished? No. God is righteously angry with our sins and will punish them with his just judgment. Is there any way to escape punishment and be brought back into God's favor? Yes. yes. To satisfy his justice, God himself, out of mere mercy, reconciles us to himself and delivers us from sin Who is the Redeemer? The only Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, in whom God became man and bore the penalty for sin himself. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for making a way for us. You have been perfect both in justice and in mercy. We accept the salvation that we do not deserve. We come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, your beloved son, trusting in his merits rather than our own. And we cast ourselves on your merciful care. We have no good apart from you. And we could ask for no greater gift than to belong to you. Amen. Let's pray together the words of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory.
I want you to think for a second on what we just confessed, that we need him, that at all times we need him. Do you really believe that? Yes. That we need him, that at all times we need him. This is part of the reason why we must be a church that are constantly praying, Right? Because we need to remember that we need him. This is part of the reason why we need to worship. Because we need to remember that we need him. This is part of the reason why we need community. Because we need to remember that we need him. This is part of the reason why we need to stop and rest and take a Sabbath. Because we need to remember that we need him. This is part of the reason why we need to confess our sins. Because we need to remember that we need him. This is part of the reason why we should be obsessed with God because we need to remember that we need him at all times. But if I tell you that that's one of the reasons why we also participate and worship God through offering and giving. Because every time we give to the Lord, every time we bring our tithes and offerings, we are publicly declaring that we need him. That he is the ultimate provider. That my source of security is him and not my money. That I have nothing secure in the things I have, but that my ultimate security is God and God alone. Amen? Amen. And this is part of the reason why I wanted to share with you something that we're going to reincorporate as part of our worship services. As you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, uh, for safety reasons, we stopped passing out the plate. Uh, for safety reasons. Um, and we want to express gratitude to all of you that continue to support the church financially, either giving online or dropping off the checks by the entrances or sending your, your offering to the offices of the church. Um, but we believe as a church that the passing of plates is important. Now, you can continue to support the church financially by giving online. You can do what I do. I, I set that thing automatic. So Every month, every two weeks, my money comes out of straight from my account. It's straight into the church. You can do that. You could still give your offering here, buy the plates, uh, buy the entrances. You can, you can still send your money to the office of the church. But there is one main reason why we believe that the church needs to pass the plates again. It's because it's a visual reminder of the things we just professed. We need to see, not just to think, but to see that we need God with everything we have and in everything we are. And every time you see that plate going from hand to hand, we are remembering that our ultimate source of security is not our money, it's God. And also, it's a reminder that this is our church and that the Lord has called us to sustain this church financially if we really believe that the Lord is moving in our midst. Amen? Amen. So for those of you that um, used to practice that, my invitation is that you do it again. If not, don't worry. Don't get all, um, just participate in the celebration. It's part of, once again, uh, giving is an act of worship. If you are already part of our church and you have been doing that for a while, we want to thank you. Really, really, you have been, the Lord has been using you to sustain this church financially for so long. But if this is your church, and if you consider that this is your church, and you're not participating in that just yet, I want to invite you to join us. Once again, this is how you publicly declare 
that your Lord is your Lord and that this is your church. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that, um, that our ultimate security doesn't have, is, doesn't have anything to do with what we have and what we don't have. We are grateful, Lord, that our ultimate security does not depend on the amount of money we have in our bank account or we don't have in our bank account. Lord, we are grateful that our ultimate security does not depend on our abilities or gifts or the size of our house or the vehicle we drive or the career we have. Lord, we are grateful uh, that we get to be reminded, Lord, that we need you 24-7 at all times, 365 days a year. Lord, we are grateful that you are our God. And therefore, Lord, I pray that you help us see, believe, understand, and apply the reality that we need you. And this is part of the reason why we are here this morning. Lord, I know that there are brothers and sisters here, or brothers and sisters worshiping with us online, that are going through painful, difficult times. And I pray, Lord, that you make it clear to us that not only we need you, but that you are very present in times of need. Lord, I also pray that you speak to us this morning. I pray, Lord, for the power, the presence, and the ministry of the Spirit that he allows us to see, that he illuminates our minds, that he moves our affections and affects our will in such a way that we believe what the scripture says and that we live according to that. Can you please, God, do that? We expect you to move because we know that you are here with us. And we pray for all of that in the name of Jesus and the church says, I'm going to ask you to please stand as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's word. We are reading this morning from Matthew chapter 12, 22 to 37. You can also find this on page 60 of your journals. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, 
But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Either in this, nope, sorry, by anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings out good things out of the good stored in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for the empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, good morning, familia. Let me ask you a question. How many of you guys read the text uh, before you come to church and you read the text in preparation for the sermon? Just by show of hands. So for those of you that read the text before, how many of you guys are nervous for me today? <laughs> Actually, one of my brothers told me right before the service, man, you got a difficult passage today. And my answer was, and I love it. My name is Hannibal, and I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church. And if you are new to the church, I, I want to, uh, or visiting the church, I want to uh, explain to you really quick why is it that we exist, or who we aspire to be, or desire to be. This is the way I would describe our church. We are a family that seeks to welcome all who are exhausted and need rest, who have failed and desire forgiveness, or who have sinned and need a savior. If that is you and you're looking for a church, look no more. This is the church for you. We have a place for you. On the other hand, if you are not exhausted or need rest, if you have never <clears throat> felt or need forgiveness, or if you have never seen and need a savior, this is the church for you. We love to have people that still think that don't need a savior. My invitation, if that's your case, is that you stick around, because I think that the Bible is gonna convince you that you are wrong. So for the last few months, we have been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and it's super interesting because we are almost going to half of the book. Matthew has 28 chapters, and we're already in chapter 12. Um, and for the last few weeks, at least to, from my perspective, we have been talking about very important topics. And I would say that the topic today is no exception, because today we're going to talk about uh, the concept of forgiveness. And I want to pose before, uh, in front of you a question that I think that we should all be able to answer. Does God forgive all sins? Does God forgive all sins? And I have three answers for you today. Yes, no, and why? And someone may hear my answer and say, ooh, Hannibal is going to get controversial today. And I would say, uh, no. We're just going to see what the Bible says. If the Bible is controversial, that's God's business. That's not my business. So the question I'm trying to answer once again is, does God forgive all sins? 
I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and ask that question. Does God forgive all sins? All right, let's go with point number one. I would say that yes, God forgives all sins. So right at the beginning of the text, we find this group of people that has already heard about Jesus and what Jesus does. And in verses 22 and 23, it says that they brought to Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him. And then in verse 23, it says that all people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? Now, that last question is very important to answer because these people are wondering if the Jesus that is casting out these demons and healing these men is the promised king of the Old Testament, the promised king slash Messiah of the Old Testament. And the reason why they're wondering this is because in their minds they know and they, they have been taught that this king will come to elevate his people and to subjugate or conquer everyone else, all the enemies. So they had this idea that this Messiah slash king would be powerful, aggressive, subjugating, and would convert people to him. The type of king these people had in mind, the problem with them is was that that was a king not necessarily described in the Old Testament, but he was a king, the product of their own imagination. So somehow they were expecting this king that would be powerful, aggressive, and subjugating, but that description did not fit what the rest of the Bible said about that king and that Messiah. <clears throat> now, this is part of the reason why, <clears throat> excuse me, this is part of the reason why the text says that the people were astonished. Which essentially means this, that they were either, this is the way you can translate that word, they were either amazed by Jesus or confused by Jesus. That word can be translated in either way. Now, my um, inclination is to believe that they were confused by Jesus because if they were expecting this powerful, aggressive, and subjugating king, they had a really hard time seeing this king that was powerful and assertive but not aggressive. A Jesus that was making claims that nobody else had done or, or made before. And he's calling people to him and he's subjugating people but not by force but by love and mercy and compassion. So they have a hard time understanding who this king is because this king is both gentle and humble. Remember that? So therefore, how can this king be this powerful, aggressive, subjugating king? So if there's something that we can learn from this group of people is that that's exactly what happens when we try to fit God to our preconceived ideas. That's exactly what happens to all of us when we think that God should be in a certain way or should act in a certain way. So if God is not who we think he is and he doesn't work the way we think he should work, then that creates confusion in our head. Among the group of these confused people, we find the religious leaders, the Pharisees. That if you have been reading the Gospel with us, uh, the Gospel of Matthew with us all this time, you know that these people really had major issues with Jesus. 
So here we got Jesus. They bring this demon-possessed man to him. He heals him. He's no longer blind and no longer mute, right? And this is what these people said as soon as they saw that in verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, we're going to dig into that passage a little more later on, but for now... You, you have to see the magnitude of what they're just saying. You, you have to understand what is it that they're saying. They're literally saying that the devil and Jesus are partners in ministry. They are saying that the prince of all demons, Beelzebul, controls the Son of God, the same one that the Father had said before, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Man, I don't know if you can see it, but that's a significant accusation. They are saying that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is working under the dominion and power of the evil one. It's so interesting because there we can see what envy can do in the heart of a person. See, envy has this tendency to look at what everybody else has that you don't have to the point that you are experiencing um, misery in your heart because you don't have that. And not only you are never content with the things you have, but you demonize the other people that have what you don't have. This is kind of what is happening here with the Pharisees. They are demonizing Jesus. Do you know what the word demonize means in the regular translation? It's when you portray someone as evil, wicked, or as a threat. That's what it means to demonize another person. That's exactly what the Pharisees are doing with Jesus. You know what's crazy about the Pharisees, though? That they have plenty they already had a status. They were respected by society. They were admired by society because they were religious leaders. And here comes Jesus that is not fighting for a status, that is not fighting to be recognized, that is not fighting for a position. And people love him. And that's why they demonize him. And that's why they say the things that they said. So here's a question for you. Do you think... That what they said about Jesus was a major sin. By show of hands, yes. By show of hands, no. This is what is interesting. What they're saying about Jesus is what the Bible would consider to be blasphemy. Is when you say something about God. So let me ask the question. Can God forgive that sin? Are you sure? Because I want you to see, look at what happens. You, you have to remember the order in which these events are happening. So what we just read is happening in verse 24. But if you keep on reading, you find verse 31. And look at what the beginning of verse, of the, sec, the first part of verse 31 says. Jesus says, I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. 
Here, church, do you know, do you know what the word every kind in the original means? Every kind. <laughs> all kinds of sins. All forms of sins. And Jesus here, you also uses the word slander. Do you know what the word slander means in the original? No. It means blasphemy. You know, I find that super interesting because on one end, Jesus says all kinds of sins can be forgiven. And then he says even blasphemy can be forgiven. The text says that every sin, every kind of sin, any category of sin, every blasphemy can be forgiven. And he re re uh, repeats the same thing in verse 32, at the beginning of verse 32, and he says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be, be, will be forgiven. And the explanation is super simple. It's because even if people blaspheme against Jesus Christ, if they believe and repent, there is forgiveness. The only thing that God requires for someone to be forgiven is to believe and to repent. That's why it's so vital for us as Christians to know the history of the Bible and to know our Bible. Because the Bible shows you how messed up his people has always been. And how willing he has been to forgive. Once, twice, three times, five times, seven times, seven times seven. So if you think that there is a sin that God cannot forgive, you, you have to see what Jesus said. So is idolatry forgivable? Of course. Don't, you, don't we have Israel as an example of people who God forgave time and time again? Is adultery and homicide forgivable? Don't we have David as an example? Is sexual sin or any kind of sexual sin forgivable? Don't you remember the story of Samson? Is betrayal forgivable? Don't we have Peter as an example? Are killing Christians forgivable? Don't you have the example of Paul? Is cowardness forgivable? Don't we have the examples of the disciples? Is violence and stealing forgivable? Don't we have the example of the man crucified right next to Jesus? Is lack of faith forgivable? Don't we have the rest of the Bible to prove the point? So if you happen to be here and you think that there is any kind of sin that God will not forgive or that is outside God's grace... Let me read these verses over you. Or let me read this verse over you. Psalm 63, 65.3 says, When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Psalm 86, verse 5. You, Lord, are forgiven and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who can stand? But with you, there, are, there is forgiveness. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Does God forgive all sins? Of course he does. Jesus says that every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Now, I don't want you to miss this, okay? The fact that Jesus 
is having these conversations with the Pharisees, it tells you that there's a chance for, the, for them to believe and repent. The fact that the conversation is happening is the best example that Jesus forgives even the people that say that he's casting out demons by the power of the devil. So from this perspective, 99.9999999 of the sins can be forgiven, except one. And someone hears me saying that and say, ooh, Hannah was about to get controversial again. And I would say, ah, uh, no. I just want you to see what the Bible says. Point number two. Does God forgive all sins? No. Listen up, church. There's one sin that God cannot forgive. There's one sin that God cannot forgive. Not even God can forgive it. Look at verse 31. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Don't you find that interesting? Look at verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is what throughout history people have called the unforgivable sin. And the question I'm trying to answer right now is, what does that mean? What does it mean to blaspheme? Uh, uh, what does it mean the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit or to speak against the Holy Spirit? Because if you understand that, then you understand what is the, the sin that God cannot forgive. Now, in order for you uh, to understand what that means, we have to do a little bit of homework, okay? So I'm going to put my teacher mentality in, and we're going to look at the Pharisees as a case study. Because if we understand what was happening with the Pharisees, then we can actually understand what does it mean by this, when Jesus says that there's a sin that cannot be forgiven. All right? Ready? Say ready. Verse 24, let's read it again. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, in this case study, you have to see how is it that Jesus responds to the Pharisees. And he's going to do to them something that he has already done a number of times throughout the history of, of, uh, of the Gospel of Matthew. And the first thing that Jesus is going to do to them to actually correct their thinking is to invite them to think and to believe in that order, to reason and then to believe. Because if there's one thing that we know about Christianity is that Christianity is not just about reasoning and thinking and it's not just about faith. It's thinking faith, reasoning faith. Following? So this is what Jesus is going to do with them. He's going to invite them to think and to reason with him. Remember what they told him? They said to Jesus, you did that, you are casting out demons by the power of Satan. And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. 
and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. I love that argument. Look at Jesus' argument, and I'm going to paraphrase. He's saying to this group of people, help me understand this. You do know that a kingdom or a city or a house that is divided within, within cannot survive. So please answer these questions for me, because if I'm driving out demons by the devil's power, why would the devil cast out his demons? Isn't that a divided house? Wouldn't that be the destruction of the devil's kingdom? It's a brilliant argument. Why would Satan go against his own people? Why would Satan do that? And he's just inviting them to think. Actually, one of the commentators, I think, puts it perfectly. He says, the Bible says that Satan is evil. Not that he's stupid. Yeah, God, Satan would never do anything like this. He would never go against his own kingdom. And Jesus says to these people, come on, y'all. Well, that's my expression. That doesn't make any sense. Think about what you just said. Why do you believe the things you believe? That's a very important question. Why do you believe the things that you believe? Now, remember that Jesus is, is gentle and humble, so please do not divorce this argument from that statement. Because if that is true, then that means that Jesus here is not trying to embarrass them. He's actually trying to bring them in. He's calling them to think and reason. He's inviting them to think and ask themselves the questions, why do you believe the things that you believe? Obviously, none of us were there, but I could just picture the, the, the faces of the Pharisees. Can you? This is when the, life, when the Bible comes alive to me, when I start trying to think what's happening there. Have you ever had an argument and you win in the argument? Have you seen people's expressions? I, I, I'm just guessing, right? This is extra biblical, but I'm just guessing that these people are like... <laughs> and most likely, if I was there, I'll be like, whatever. I, I think that that's what's happening there. Jesus, in a very loving way, is confronting them, inviting them to think, and because they don't have an answer, they don't know what to do. Why do you think? Why do you believe the things you believe? And Jesus would do it again in verse 27. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do you people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. So we know from extra biblical sources like Josephus, which he was a Jewish uh, historian, we know that one of the things that the Pharisees used to practice was casting out demons. Actually, part of what it meant for them to be religious leaders of the time was to cast out demons, meaning that people would take their, their, their demons-possessed people to them and they would cast them out. And this is what Jesus says to them. If you guys do the very things I just did, and you are accusing me of doing that by the power of the devil, doesn't that put you in a really awkward place? Because you guys are doing exactly the same thing that I'm doing. So by whose power are you doing yours that is different to the way I'm doing it? Brilliant. He's inviting them to think and to reason. Why do you believe the things you believe? 
That's the question you got to ask yourself. Why do you believe the things you believe? Because the assumption is that all of our thinking and reasoning is objective. Here, one of the major struggles with Christianity today is that we assume that our reasoning and thinking is objective. That we see things the way they are. Charles Taylor, which is a, a philosopher, a Canadian philosopher, he wrote a book called The Secular Age. And, and uh, he's explaining what is happening to secular age. And he, the, the point of the, his main argument of the book is precisely that. That in the secular age, many people assume that their beliefs are objective. That when we say something, it's because that's the way it's supposed to be. His whole argument is that no one has objective beliefs to begin with. That everything that we believe comes from background beliefs. That's what he calls it. Background beliefs are those things that we uh, acquire or received because of our history or our background, or our experiences, or our traditions, or even our families. Therefore, no one comes to Jesus. No one comes to the Bible. No one interprets the Bible at the beginning completely objective. We all bring everything subjectively. You know where I've seen this the most? In multi-ethnic relationships. So if you grew up in a certain group, and in that group people tended to elevate a group of people above, above everybody else, and undermine other people, whether you like it or not, that's how you think. And the Bible needs to reshape that. That is also true for any kind of relationship. If someone was in an abusive relationship and they come into a new relationship, that person carries that understanding into the new relationship. That happens in leadership. You had a really messed up leader, you come into a new leader and people say, well, you're just like the other one. That's not fair. We do that with everything. None of us come to Jesus. None of us come to the Bible with objective thinking. We all have been shaped by something and therefore we must let the Bible, by the power of the Spirit, redefine what is objective and what is not. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing to these people. He's saying, reason, think, because everything that you're saying comes from somewhere. Why do you believe the things that you believe? And he's saying all of this because he's calling them to believe and repent. What is interesting, though, is that he doesn't stop on the reasoning part. And he doesn't stop on the thinking part. He's going to call them to take a leap of faith. Because at the end of the day, no one here will get all the answers. No one will get enough answers in order for us to say, I must believe you must take a leap of faith. And this is what Jesus does with them in verse 28. He says, but if by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is Jesus saying, because of, of the arguments I just gave you, 
If I'm not doing the things I'm doing by the power of Satan, then that means that I'm doing what I'm doing by the power of the Spirit. And if that's the case, then I am the promised Messiah of the Old Testament and the kingdom of God has arrived. You must believe. And he says something similar to support his argument in verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house, carry off his possessions, unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. And Jesus, this is Jesus' way of saying, yes, Satan is strong. Yes, Satan is powerful. But I'm stronger. I could do what he cannot do. He came to destroy, but I came to heal. He came to demolish, but I came to restore. He came to kill, but I, came to, but I come to give life. He's got nothing on me. I am much more stronger than the devil. And then he says, believe. Believe and repent. Take a leap of faith. And just in case they missed it, he says this in verse 30. Whoever is not with me, is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And here, Jesus says, you only have two options. You're either for me or you are against me. You don't get to be in the middle. You don't get to create this syncretism in which you grab a little bit of all religions and then you grab Christianity. You don't get to put your traditions at the same level as the gospel. You don't get to put your own preferences at the same level as the gospel. You don't get to put your political views in the same place where the Bible is. It's either me or not me. You are for me or against me. Believe. Reason, think, and believe. So now we can answer the question. What is the unforgivable sin? I think that by now, you would understand that the unforgivable sin is when people choose purposely to resist the prompting of the Spirit and choose not to believe and not to repent. That is the unforgivable sin. When people have the evidences of who Jesus is and what he came to do and say, no, thank you. That is the unforgivable sin. There's a, a professor of philosophy, a self-proclaimed atheist. His name is uh, uh, Thomas Nagel. This is what he says. And I actually appreciate his honesty. He says, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And unless that man repents, and unless that man believes, that's the unforgivable sin. Let me, let me push the concept a little more. God 
cannot forgive a person like that because if he does, he goes against his holiness, he goes against what he has already established, and he has and he's going against the prompting of the Spirit. Have you ever thought about that? God can forgive all sins, but not if the person does not want to believe and does not want to repent. See, it is not that some people are not forgivable. And it's not that there are some sins that are not forgivable. Even though I've heard some Christians say some dumb things about that. Usually the sins that they don't like. The ones that they like, they never put in that category. That's not the problem. The problem is that there are some people that are not repentable. The problem is not with the sin. The problem is with the attitude of the heart. So I want to answer two questions really quick here because um, I I think that sometimes, even within Christianity, there's a group of people that are always wondering if they have already committed the unforgivable sin. So if you're not a believer just yet, if you ask me, Hannibal, did I already commit the, the unforgivable sin? I would say, no, not yet. Do you know how I know that? Because you still care about that question. The, actually, the fact that you're here, if you're here, shows you that God is still working in you. That means that you got to continue to seek. You got to continue to ask questions. You got to continue to hang around. You got to continue to do things. But at one point, you got to know that you have to make a decision for God. The second question that people may ask when we talk about this concept is, if I'm already a believer, can I actually commit the unforgivable sin? And I think that the biblical answer is no. Because no one that has received the Holy Spirit can lose it again. No one that has been implanted can be deplanted. So no, you can, you can commit the unforgivable sin. Even if you feel that you have. You know one thing that I've learned? That our God is so powerful, so lovely, so full of grace, so full of compassion that he would do anything in his power to bring me to believe and to repent, even if it involves pain. I was having a conversation with a young lady that struggles with anxiety. And she says that she came to understand, to understand why is it that God allowed her to struggle with anxiety, which is really interesting for a young lady to say. So I said, why is it that God has not taken that from you? And she says, because I know that if he would take it away, I would walk away from him. God would do anything in his power to bring you to him. For you to believe and repent. And if you're a Christian, God will continue to do everything in his power for you to continue to believe and continue to repent. So the last question is, why? Why would God want us to believe and to repent? Point number three. And the text is going to argue that the reason why Jesus is so clear about calling us to believe and repent is because our number one enemy, the weapon of self-destruction that we live with, is our hearts. 
And that's why Jesus is going to use this, is going to use this metaphor to explain this concept. Look at what it says in verse 33. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. And make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. So he says, if you really want to know who a person is, think about a tree. If the tree is good, you get good, tree, good fruit. If the tree is bad, then you get bad fruit. And then he applies that to humanity in verse 34. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Stay there for a second. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. There is not one word that comes out of your mouth in which you can say, oops, I did it again. Every word that comes out of your mouth is a reflection of your heart. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. So Jesus is going to say to the Pharisees, and he says to all of us, if you really think that you're a good person, look at the things you say. And if you think that you're a bad person, you have no idea how bad you are because look at the things you say. And if that's not scary enough, look at verse 36. But I tell you that everyone would have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. 37. For by your words you will be acquitted and by your words you will be condemned. Isn't that scary? Don't miss the point. The words explain what's in the heart. Can you see why Jesus must call people to, re to believe and repent? Can you see why Jesus in the first place called you, if you're already a believer, to believe and repent? Just think about the amount of words you've said. How, how many of those words you have used for edification instead of pain? How often have you used your words to bless instead of hurt? How many times have you used your words to damage someone's reputation? How many times have you used your words to put someone down? How many times have you used your words to show gratitude or your words show ingratitude? Can't you see why Jesus calls us to believe and repent? Because unless we do that, we kill ourselves, we destroy ourselves, and we destroy everybody else we love. This is why Jesus calls us to believe and repent. There's one more thing that you can miss, though. That all of this conversation happened before Jesus going to the cross. Because there's one more thing that God cannot do. He cannot just forgive you without, paying the without someone paying the consequences of your sin. He can't do that. Because if he forgives us without the penalty of sin, then everybody else could say, well, God just forgives. And that's why Jesus later on will go to the cross. To take the condemnation we deserved. But now I want you to listen. 
the words of Jesus as he's nailed to the cross. Because if words are reflection of our hearts, you must see the heart of Jesus as he's nailed to the cross. See at the cross he says, Father forgive them for they do not know what they do. These are the words of a king pleading for our forgiveness. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. In paradise, Those are the words of our king extending salvation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are the words of our king experiencing abandonment, the abandonment we deserved. He said, I, he said, I thirst. Those are the words of our king in distress because of our sin. And then he says, it is finished. Those are the words of our king a triumphant king, a king that defeated guilt, shame, condemnation, and Satan. Do you want to see the heart of Jesus? Listen to the words he said. Believe and repent. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that the fact that we are here today, that the fact that we get to talk about this topic, that the, that the fact that we are talking about believing and repentance is the ultimate evidence, Lord, that you are calling us to do just that. To believe and to repent. And that's an evidence of your grace. Lord, and I know that many of us are already, have already placed our faith in Jesus Christ. But our whole life will be about believing and repenting. So please help us to be sensitive to the move of the Spirit, the voice of the Spirit, the prompting of the Spirit, to not grieve the Spirit. Lord, and if there's anyone here who does not have a saving relationship with you just yet, would you please bring them to you? Would you please help them not to resist the Spirit? Because at the end of the day, you want to forgive all sins. And you want everyone to come to you. And with that, Lord, we want to declare as a congregation that you, our king, is a king of victory. That you, our king, not only defeated the devil and defeated our sin and defeated the power of sin and the condemnation of sin, but that you also defeated our sinful hearts. You are a king of victory. And the church says? Today we are celebrating that powerful victory with a great celebration to finish our service. We have a guest with us today. Tanya Egler is the director of the Wheaton College Gospel Choir, as many other things that she does at Wheaton College. She's a good friend, and she is, loves the Lord. And so celebrate with us the victory that we have in Jesus Christ.
Colossians says that at the cross, Jesus defeated the devil. You know what that means? That he's still around, but he has no power. That's right. He has no power over you. You have been already forgiven and accepted and sanctified and adopted. Meaning that you have a new nature. Meaning that you have the Holy Spirit to be able to resist not just your sin, but the influence of Satan. Amen? Amen. With that in mind, let's receive the blessing that Jesus Christ guarantees for us. May God be gracious to us and bless us. And make his face shine on us. So that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all the nations. And the church says... Thanks for coming. We love you. Church, you are sent.